This event was recorded live at the 2016 Edinburgh International Book Festival. In UEFA, believe it or not, and uh, <clears throat> he was over here at the wedding recently. He's obviously back at holiday again, so it was nice to see him. I know there's a few people from Donegal. Yeah. Is Mr. John Boyle here? There he is. Have you turned up your hair, Ned? <laughs> yeah? Every time I speak to him, I have to repeat my stories to him every so often, and his sons and that, so it's great to see you all, and delighted to be here. I'm not used to big crowds, you know. I'm not used to big crowds anymore. <laughs> that day is certainly gone. A number of years ago, number of years ago I, uh, when I retired, I decided my wife had to go back to work. She had to go to college first, though. And she went back to college, she did her diploma, and we were back, we were in the uh, college uh, at her graduation. And this family was there, and I was outside with Anne's dad. Now, Anne's dad, to explain to you, was a man at that time, about 70 years old, grey beard, glasses, grey hair. And this family was walking by, and the, and the, and the boy came out, oh, you're Pat Boner, aren't you? And I says, I am. Oh, could you have a picture taken with my grandmother? She loves you, and she was with him. And I says, of course. So we built up the big thing. Oh, Pat Boner, come and have your photograph taken with you. And she says, oh, she says, Pat Boner. She says, I used to stand in the jungle at Parkhead and watch you. Now, she was 80 years old, <laughs> so I was getting a little bit worried. Oh, you were fantastic, fantastic. And what that, Tommy, Anne's dad, moved to the side, and she came up and she went past me and put her arm around Tommy <laughs> to get a photograph. So that's how quickly you've forgotten, guys, in this world of football. So that's it. So listen, I'm absolutely delighted to be here. Actually, very honoured to be asked to come to uh, Edinburgh, to the book fest. So beautiful atmosphere, I'd say. We were here early, getting set up and checking things out. And there's a lovely atmosphere. So we're very honoured. And this is the main event, Paggy. This is the well. Was this the finish? Is the, last, the end? No, this is the, the last, last event. event of the the, and the fire. The fire uh, things are going off at quarter past nine. They tell us, you know. So anyway, we have to be out of here. So um, the book, and I suppose from my point of view, um, when we sat down, it was about a journey. Um, and I always talk about everybody's got a life and a journey about them. Um, and my my life started off in Donegal in a little. A uh, place over in Bur called Burton Port, uh, just outside of a little town village called Clocklass, town land. And that journey went on and is still going on. And I suppose the big moment in everybody's life, there's big, big moments. And Jerry introduced me with the save. And I like to get the save out of the road. <laughs> Everybody wants to talk about a save, but there was so, so much more about it. And then how, did, how did I get to that point in life? That saved 94, 1990, and can I say also 1988 against England in the European Championships when we beat England and the English people. Sorry, sorry. Uh, so they're big, big moments in life, but what defines your life is how do you get to that point, the people that affect you along that point, and then what happens thereafter. And I must say that those moments, and especially the penalty save, can I... I wouldn't say change me, but certainly change the perception of people about me and my life and so on. And now I'm at the point where I wrote a book. <laughs> I wrote a book. Um, I thought I would never write a book. This man here, Jerry McDade, you've seen that he's a comedian. He <laughs> no, also plays. <laughs> he also plays in a band. And where's your, your Rio, band members? Rio, Joe, where are you? There Joe's go. here. Where's he also sings in the band, believe it or not. But I met him when he was working at Celtic Football Club and he was doing the TV show in there and he invited me in to have a little chat and he kind of persuaded me. Isn't that right, Jerry? You tried to persuade me, well, but it wasn't going to happen. Well, they call it a restraining order. So, so you... Two years. You well, he did. Well, what had happened, it was the cup final of 2013, Celtic against Hibs. Any Hibs supporters in? <laughs> so it was a great game, wasn't it? Yeah, really good. <laughs> so we were looking to do a preview show and somebody said, who can you get in? And I said, why, why don't we get Pat Bonner in? because he's played in all these games, he's played in the cup finals. Nah, nah, he doesn't do television for us. I said, well, have you phoned him? No. I said, well, look, I'll phone him. So then I phoned him and said, would you come in? Ah, sure, sure. I don't really do the voice, but... <laughs> sure, what, what is involved? You know, I said, well, you know, you come in, we talk about the, the preview of the game and talk about your career and blah, blah, blah. So that was fine. So then I got him in, and then somebody at Celtic says to me, now, here's a thing. Call him Pat or Patrick. You don't call him Packy. <laughs> He hates being called Packy Bonner. So I turn Which out. isn't true. Pat, Patrick, Pat, Patrick, Pat, Patrick. <laughs> and then we started writing the book, of course, last year. I said, look, nail this for me. What do we call you? 
He says, I'm Packy Bono. That's Patrick Joseph. Am I right? Is that Patrick Joseph? Patrick, I was christened Patrick, uh, but I had an uncle who was 21 years old when he died, and his name was Packy Boner. So I was always going to be called Packy Boner. And let me tell you a story, and I don't know whether there's any uh, people from the Pakistani community in our audience, but I've, I'm very friendly with, with most of them now because they love my name. They love my name. <laughs> and I tell the story about myself and a good friend of mine, Connell Boyle. Um, and when I came to Glasgow first, um, you know, I didn't know what Glasgow was going to be like. I didn't know that we had a big Pakistani community. And my name was Packy Boner. Uh, and, and it was a we very West of Ireland name, as we, we all know, lots of people. A guy called Tony Grealish, who played for Ireland, his dad at a pub in London, he was called Packy Grealish, so it was a very West of Ireland name. But I went bought my own house, and my brother came over, Connell came, and a friend from Dublin, and they were staying with me. I was working, they were partying. Of course they were. But we ran out of messages, we ran out of everything, uh, and it was New Year, all shops uh, closed apart from our Pakistani neighbours down, down the road. So I said, come on, Connell, you're coming with me down to the shop and we're going to get the messages. Yeah, bread, milk, all the usual. Down to the shop, Connell goes to one end of the shop, I'm up the other end, and Connell's shouting up to me, he says, Packy, what kind of bread do you want? <laughs> and, and the guy behind the reception chucked us out of the shop. <laughs> and I had to explain to him, come on, this is my name, this is my name. And he, we became great friends after when he hit. And I, and I told that story many times, and, and they love it because it's a great ah, bit Packy, of fun. You're in Edinburgh. It's not the I'm messages. In Edinburgh. It's not the messages. It's, it's provisions. Okay? Yeah, <laughs> provisions. We've crossed the border here. Come on. So the funny thing about it was, uh, as I went on in life, and everybody now called me Packy, all my colleagues call me Packy, and in Ireland especially, and it became a little bit of a brand. People, there's loads and loads of Pat. Is there any Pats in here? I'm sure there is. Lots of Patricks in here, maybe. But there's very few Packies, isn't there? So it became a bit of a, a name for me, and I could use it, and everybody knows kind of who I am. So hence, Packy Boner, the book. Mm -hmm. So that's it. But Jerry forced me into this book because yeah. I had no connotations of writing a book, by the way. No, none. I come from Donegal. You don't write books coming from Donegal. <laughs> So that was sure, so uh, no way. And then we went down to Greenock mm. about two years after, and uh, I was coming back up in the car, we were doing something, and he says, there's an envelope for you. So I got this A4 envelope. He says, have a read of it. And I put it up in my uh, wee office up in the house, and I left it there, and then about three months later, he says, I better read this. And we read, uh, I read it, and I thought, fantastic. Uh, I'll, that's exactly what I told Jerry the story. And maybe Jerry, at this point, uh, let, let's, let's go. That's my mum. And that's Clock Class. That's our house that I was brought up in, in, in Clock Class. Can you see that? You want to get up in the, in the front there. But that's my mum. She died last year. She was 90 years old. And we were brought up in a house, and there was five sisters, a twin brother, one of these guys. One of these guys, which one am I? Which one am I? The one on the right, absolutely, the good looking one. Is that what you're gonna say? And that's Dennis on, on the left, and we were twins. We had five sisters, uh, four were born, and then suddenly two boys came along, and then a sister later on, and we were brought up. In, and our house was built for bed and breakfast predominantly because it was right on the northwest coast. Lots of uh, people from Northern Ireland, but lots of Scottish people came through. And it was built originally way back in the 50s for bed and breakfast. Then it changed and we came into it. My mum and dad started bed and breakfast up again when we were teenagers. And what I loved about the house was it was people coming to a house. You can imagine you're in a house and you're meeting people from all denominations, all walks of life, all cultures. And my dad was a fantastic storyteller. He was a brilliant storyteller. And even after we stopped it, when we got older, people used to come back to listen to him telling stories. And we'd, we'd sit around. We were young, sitting around listening to him, and it was fantastic. I have a sister, Kathy, who is a brilliant storyteller. I'm not so good, and, and so on. But she could come over here to Edinburgh, or go down to Glasgow, or go down to the south, and she'll come back with 20 stories. And she will uh, entertain us all for the evening when she comes back. So she has rubbed off on her. So that was our house being brought up back in Donegal. So it had a real effect on me, the way that our house was almost an integration of cultures and people. I think most of us sitting around here would have a story to tell and a book to write. Most of us will have things that your parents give you. I think 
the first thing that probably our parents given it was this word hard work. Anybody go to the bog and cut turf? Any of you guys, you know what turf is? Pete, Pete, I know you're, you come from another part of, but we cut turf, we had to go to the bog, and you've got to do almost five or six different tasks over about three months, yeah? John, three months to get the turf home. Hard, hard work, and we're going up at three. All the other jobs we had to do when we came from school, and then we went and played football. So hard work was ingrained into us, and nothing wrong with it. I suppose the other thing that was huge for us uh, was respecting people, because people came to the house, we had to respect their privacy, and respect them for who they were, and so on. So again, that was ingrained into us, and again, another fantastic core value that, that I had for people I met along the way, people in the dressing room, people who are my trainers and elders. So it was kind of almost put into us, into us also. Honesty was a big thing, you know, be honest in life and get on with it. This one here, humility. Now, if you come from Donegal, the first thing they'll tell you, don't get carried away with yourself. <laughs> yeah, you're getting carried away. What about that uh, Scottish word you had when I used to go home? I had a few Scottish words I picked up, and I was, I was out of me after about a couple of weeks. So humility, so you're kind of always walking around with your shoulders down, if you're from Donegal, a little bit. But if you have to go into a Celtic dress room, you've got to stand up for yourself. So humility can work both ways. So it's a big one that I've learned that I've had to handle it. Humility, as you go up the ladder, you meet people on the way back down. So that was always the things that we... And the other one, the final one that I, I talk about a lot is resilience. There is many times, many times, and I'm sure some of you are here also when you were young, many times I cried myself to sleep being away from home, being away from my brother, being away from my friends, being away from my family. But I had to stick with it. I remember Billy McNeil saying to me one time, I was having an absolute shocker. And I was in training, by the way. <laughs> and Billy says, come on, if you don't snap out of it, you'll be home on the first boat. I was only a kid, I was only 19 years old. Is that hard? Maybe so, but in the world of football, you've got to get results. And so I was re resilient. I stuck with it and I says, no, I'm not going to go home. I'm not leaving here. I'm going to make it happen. So those were the, the core kind of values. That was our team Cage Rovers. The man I just mentioned there, Mr. Boyle, in the middle, played with this team many, 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 many years before me, yeah? <laughs> can, you, uh, can you notice anything about this photograph? Yeah, Hairdo, cut, yes. Cuts are dreadful, aren't they? Yes, hair locks. We had long hair at the time, middle shade. Neil sure, Lennon. All of you had that. Neil Lennon down at the left. Trophies, we yeah. had trophies. He says, yeah, Neil Lennon down in the corner. No, it wasn't Neil Lennon. What else about the photograph? And there are some people there that, that some of you might recognize if you were from that area. But there's something unique about the photograph. Yeah, what about him? Absolutely. Mm, perfect. That's a famous man called Manus McCall. And Manus McCall came from Keju. And he ran, at our time, he ran Keju Rovers. There's a great book, uh, Matthew Syed, um, called Bounce. I don't know if anybody has read it. Anybody? Yeah. yeah. And it's about, he talks about getting opportunity. About getting opportunity. Well, Manus allowed us to get the opportunity. He set up an under 16, 17, 18 team and there was a whole group of us playing it, and then we stepped up to the first team. And I think back on it now, Manus had no legs. He was born with no legs. He lived in Keju. His passion was football. He also drove a taxi, <laughs> believe it or not. And he would land down in our, our, beside our street, and he would talk all night about football and so on. So he had a real passion for it. And without him, I certainly wouldn't be standing here today. He died a couple of years ago, uh, and it's a unique photograph for me because uh, because of that situation. Fantastic guy. Mm. I mentioned about uh, my house, my mum, but my dad also was a hugely important part of my life. And I want to do a reading now, if that's okay, Jerry. You want to introduce it? Absolutely. Um, yeah, I should have pointed out, we're going to do four readings tonight from the book, just short extracts. Um, Pack and I had always talked in terms of starting the book with the save, pivotal moment, changes your life. And then we were sitting one day in his kitchen, and we were going through it, and he started telling me this story. And as soon as he told me it, I said, that's the start of the book. That's absolutely the start of the book, you know. My father said to me a few months ago, get out. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> he says, because he, he can't give you a compliment for it. I said, see that stuff at the, the start of the book? I said, I. Does he tell you that or do you write it like that? I said, how do you mean? Does he, does he tell you that or do you? I said, well, let me, let me say, it's like he tells me about the picture and I paint it. He said, all right. Not bad. <laughs> so, that's as good a comment as you get from my father. So, we're going to take you back here uh, to this moment. We call it the moment. It's the opening pages of the book. I was never a reader at school. Mm. Cajun school, by the way, primary. Anyway, okay, let's go for it. I had spent a night in Larrakenny catching up with my brother Dennis and our cousin Connell Boyle. And in the morning, I realised that the best way to get to Dunlow was to catch a lift, which I did. From there, I knew there was only one way to get back to clock class, to get back home, and that was to take the school bus. And so I sat, as I had so many, many times before, in the single decker, alongside the children of various ages. The difference this time was that I was gripped with excitement and emotion of going home for the first time. I knew virtually all of the children, and they of course knew that I was no outsider. And yet strange as it was to squeeze my frame into the battered seats and look out the window, remembering those countless occasions when I had done so in the past. Staring through the glass and daydreaming of what the future could hold for me. By now it was dusk, a grey dusk that painted itself across the sky and all I could really see was my reflection, but the memory was as clear as sunlight. When we got to the bus stop, I disembarked at the road end along with my fellow passengers, and as they scurried off to the very ho various houses, I knew that I had still a mile-long walk before I would be at Castleport House. The last leg of the journey that, started, that had started the day before in the Gorbals district of Glasgow where the welcome sight of Doherty's coaches had greeted me from its traditional starting point as I prepared to ferry us back across the Irish Sea. As always, the last leg gave me a chance to think, to think about the changes this last year. A year that I had set out my stall to complete my leave insert, and then go away to college and start working towards a career as a PE teacher. The trial period that I had spent at Leicester City working with the men who had honed the skills of Gordon Banks and Peter Shilton that had come to nothing. But I was too young to be disillusioned, and so I worked hard at school, as my parents had always insisted upon, and closed in on the required grades. Yet, football was always a disruptive influence. I was close to home now, but at the top of the hill I stopped to take in a view that I could never and would never tire of. Off to the right was a clearly visible Oe Island, to my left, I could make out the shadow of Arnmore Island in the diminishing light, and right in front of them was a roar of the Atlantic Ocean that separated both parcels of land from each other. The rush of the water was a well-kent tune in my ear, and I knew full well every rock and crevice in this rugged coastline for a three-mile radius. Beyond that lay America. I had not applied to college because another Irishman, a great man, a Sligo man named Sean Fallon, whose accent had never left the county, even if he had many years before, had contacted me first and told me I was wanted in Glasgow, wanted to learn my apprenticeship at one of the biggest names in world football. Castleport House had been constructed as a bed and breakfast, and I could now see its two story, stories partially lit and what looked like a Christmas tree in the front room. There was the gable end of the house that felt the thump thump of a football on it a million times over without complaint when I was a child. And it, an open goal at Highbury, White Hart Lane or even Celtic Park in my vivid imagination. I made my way down the road and around the corner. Down below the house and yet in close proximity was the garage. Door open despite the cold, lights on and within was my father, the old fella working with his hands as usual. There was no manual task that was beyond Andrew Boner, and his devotion to a job well done was absolute. But now he was peering into the gloom with a tall figure ambling around the hill. Against the backdrop of the evening, it could only be a silhouette to him, and yet, quietly, he laid down his tools and started out towards me. I hadn't told my parents that I would be coming home that Christmas, but at 18, I was third choice goalkeeper and I had been allowed back home to Ireland for the festive period. The old fellow reached me and we embraced warmly before he led me back up to the house. 
It was a moment, a very special moment, and I will absolutely take it with me to the grave. I was Packy Boner of Celtic, and I had come home, home to Donegal in December 1978 for Christmas. So, um, we, we, we've been doing a lot of these events, obviously, and we started off last year doing it at Waterstones. And the big fella says to me, so what, what do we do at these things? And I said, well, we'll go along, we'll do a Q&A, we'll talk about the book, and we'll do a couple of readings. Whoa, 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 readings? I said, yeah, it's a book event. People expect you to read. Ah, I can't read. I can't, I can't be reading, you know. I said, ah, come on now. So we did it. And be honest, it's an Irish Jack and Ori, isn't it? It's for all right. So this is the man that can't read. Yeah, the other, the other thing that happened, um, the first time we did this, uh, John's brother Manus, who's also mentioned in the book, we used to play cards together, uh, 25. Anybody play 25 as an old Irish game? We used to come together as a group, and it was really just for the crack. It wasn't about making money or anything, but it was for the crack and Manus, and I'd talk about Manus. But he was in the audience, but there was this old lady with her daughter. Uh, should I say old? That's a terrible connotation as old. But this lady and her daughter was in the audience. And as I was reading this, um, I looked up and the, the lady was crying. Tears were coming down her, her face because what she was remembering was her own journey, her own story. And when we sat down, when we talked about the book, um, we didn't want to write a book about all these football stories. Yes, football stories are there and the life is football, but we want to also catch the imagination and the emotion of those type of things, things that affected me in my life. And I think that story was the first story, but it, was, it captured her imagination also because she remembered her first journey when she was going away from home. And that's what we want to do with the book. And I think that's the, the, the outcome. Yeah. Um, just moving on to these two guys here. I'm sure you know you don't need to sign up. Even people from the opposite persuasion in Glasgow <laughs> know who these guys are. One is Sean Fallon and Jock Steed. Now, one of the things that appealed to me about Packy when I started doing a wee bit of research about him was he's got this aura. I don't, I don't know how we can put it. There are moments in his life that came along symmetrical, right? He signed for Celtic and he was Jockstein's last signing. A fortnight after uh, he arrived, Jockstein had left. He made his debut on St. Patrick's Day for Celtic. He made his international debut on his 21st birthday. And even on the day in 1994, when Lou McCarry um, <laughs> decided to release him, and we didn't know this till we started writing, it was actually 16 years to the day that he'd signed for Celtic. So what appealed to me was, A, get to know the guy, find out about him, tell his story, because as Packy says, we didn't want a story about Davy Proven of an injury and couldn't make the cup game, blah, blah, blah. That's all well and good. What we wanted to do was get to where the guy was, what he was all about, and that was something that, that appealed to me. There's a kind of symmetry about this guy's life that you have these moments that chronologically come in on birthdays and, and whatever. So. Jockstein, I was Jockstein's last setting. Um, and <clears throat> I, I don't want to give away the book. I want you to read the book, please. And buy um, it. <coughs> about the story. But when you get a man like that who actually came to Donegal, many days after he was gone? 14. 14 days later, Jockstein had left Celtic Football Club. To give up his time to come over to Donegal, you might say, oh, because he sent a great player, but no. <laughs> I look at it differently and I said he, he kept his word. He had it in his diary, he knew what he wanted to do, and he wanted to go out with a clean, everything sorted, and he came all the way over to Donegal to sign me, which is quite interesting. But the other man we signed him was Sean Fallon. We mentioned him in the story, Sean Sligo man. And Sean was, at that moment in time, he was the, the chief scout. And he went to watch me, and I remember meeting him in Dublin for the very first time. We were playing Finland in a youth game, and he came over and he shook my hand. Can I shake your hand? As a Donegal man would shake your hand. Yeah? He's a hearts man. Probably. Yeah, he's a hearts man. Just, just saying, you know. Sean grabbed my hand, and it was like, you know an Irishman grabs your hand, and a Scotsman probably does this exactly the same thing. There was a sense of warmth going through me when he shook my hand. I felt that he, I belonged with him. It was a family I was coming into. And Sean, he was a wonderful man. He, he also left at the same time as Jock. So now suddenly I was coming in July. This was May, by the way, and I hadn't come over to start my full-time career. And then I came over and Billy and John had taken over. But Sean always remained in contact. He lived down in Manic Road, 
just down where I lived. I lived up in Sims Hill with my aunt. And he used to meet me at Mass, and he would come over, and he always asked after my mother, how is your mother? That was the first thing he would say to me. And then he would sort of talk to me. I remember meeting him one day in Celtic Park many years after, and his daughter, his oldest daughter, was going off to Peru. She was a uh, um, doctor, and she was going off to Peru to do some charity work. And the tears were rolling down his face that he was losing one of his daughter, daughters to go to Peru. Uh, it was a, v a very Irish man. Can I tell the last piece? You keep asking me if you can tell it because it's the last bit of the book. And I always say it's the last bit of the book. Uh, I don't want to give away the book. Tell it but, anyway, so. but Sean. <laughs> you, know, you know the Titanic went down, Pat. You don't, I mean, are we, are we giving it away here? No, no. You have to read it because when you read it, you get the emotion. Sean um, was 90 years old, similar age to my mum. And. Uh, one of the political correspondents from Northern Ireland was doing, they were doing a documentary for uh, Tommy, Tommy, can't remember his name, but he, he was doing a documentary in Sean for RTE. And he phoned me up to say, would you speak on this documentary? I said, oh, delighted to speak. I'm away at the moment, I'll be back tomorrow. Well, I'm over in Glasgow, he says, I'm going to interview Sean, and then I could interview. So I did the interview. And then I watched back the documentary, and you probably can get it uh, on podcasts, or whatever it is, YouTube. And, and YouTube or whatever, in RTE. And Sean, they spoke to Sean, and they asked him a question right at the end. And the question was, what would you, advice would you give the young people now, Sean? And he thought for a moment, and then he says, he says, uh, he says, if you don't like somebody, don't engage. That's Sligo action. Don't engage. Walk away from them. Don't, don't, don't bother yourself about it. But see if you like somebody. Do as much as you can for them. Do as much as you can for them. And then he looked up to heaven, yeah, I think, and he says, you listen to me up there. <laughs> you listen to me up there. Three days later, he was dead. So that was Sean, but it summed up, and it was a brilliant way to go out. And I owe him so much for getting me over here. And I'm sure there's lots of other players like Danny McGrain and all of those guys that actually owe that man so much. But he used to bring me down to the house also and so on for dinner and so on. So he was still working for Celtic Football Club and he was gone. He was working for the next 20 years for Celtic Football Club. But I don't know, hands and heart, whether they fully appreciated what he was actually doing in the background. Fantastic man. And that's me and me. Me tanned legs, see guys, white legs when I left the Nigal and suddenly they were tanned. Al Japan, it's all Al Japan you rub into them. You know what I mean? Photograph of Celtic now, people who don't follow Celtic, sorry. That was one of my first days. My hair was still fairly long. Uh, you might not see it that well in, in this light, but there was guys in there, fantastic guys. Billy McNeil's very first signing was in there. Any Celtic supporters in? Yeah. Who was Bill Meneal's first signing when he went to Celtic Football Club? Come on, quickly. No. Nope. Nope. No, 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 no. Roy was there. Nope. No. 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 Nope. Sorry, Dennis. No. Johnny nope. Doyle. No. Little man up at the back on the right-hand side, a fellow called Jimmy Lumsden. Jimmy Lumsden was his very first signing. There's one for your, for your quizzes now. And he became a coach thereafter with the reserves and worked with Frank, Frank Connor and me. There is one man missing from that photograph. Come on, you Celtic supporters, come on. Any Hearts supporters in? Yes, I heard that earlier on, Hearts. Any Hibs supporters in? Yes. Any Meadow Batten? No, they're gone, aren't they? Oh, they're well gone. Livingston. Livingston, Livingston. Yeah. yeah. One man There's missing. one man missing, famous man. I'll give you a clue. We think he was at Mass. Tommy, Tommy Burns. Burns. Tommy Burns. It's amazing. This is our team photograph. Tommy was there all that time. So he must have fallen out with the club. His contract must have been up and say, banned him from the photograph. I don't know why he wasn't there. But he certainly isn't in the photograph. I still don't know the story behind it. So he's there. Oh, yeah. there you are. Yeah. I don't know why we stood like this. Yeah. <laughs> Now we see a I've smile a on the hearts, idea, the hearts and the Hibs supporters. <laughs> Why on earth did the football team stand like that? Yeah. And look at, how, look at how short the shorts were. Is that not why you're standing like that? <laughs>
Uh, there's some, I love that photograph. There's some, all you recognize some of the face. Davy Moyes is in the photograph, if you yeah. see right be behind me. I have no smile on my face. <laughs> Roy Aiken, Charlie Nicholas, Davy Proven, all the guys, some younger guys. Mick Conroy is in there. Mick Conroy was the second last signing. He was there on trial. And Mick now works, was working with me over in Cork and living over in Cork. Uh, what else is unique about this photograph? The jungles, no, I think that's actually the, might be the Rangers or Celtic again, it's not quite the jungle. No but there's no foreign players. <laughs> Lovely. An Irishman, for God's sake. The, 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 I think I was the only foreign player, and Peter Lashford. Peter Lashford was the goalkeeper, Bob Lashford. Graham, you remember? Yeah. Well, Mick Conroy's for Port Glasgow, that's the yeah. best foreign <laughs> as you can get. Yeah. All black shoes, all black boots. We weren't allowed. The only two that had different boots than Adidas, because Adidas was a sponsor, was Danny McGray and David Proven Puma. And that was a start of, of sponsorship and promotion. I think they got about 50 pound, <laughs> 50 pound at that time. I won't tell you what wages we were on, by the way. Yeah. That's for sure, but I love the photograph. It just sums up that particular time. And that, I can tell you this, uh, and I tried to encapsulate some of the stuff in the, the 1980s was a magnificent time for us. Of course, Aberdeen and, and um, Dundee United were a big challenge, not so much Rangers, but they were still there. But it was such a funny time. Characters in the dressing room, we had brilliant, brilliant stories around it. So that was uh, that. So during that period, of course, we had a little bit of success. And I'm sorry now, Jerry's going to read uh, this here about when we beat there's a hang There's a hanky big guy, you might. <laughs> <laughs> Or if you want to go, I don't, it's up to yourself here. You know? <laughs> so Jerry's going to do the reading on this. Um, we talked about this before, that you know, there are so many moments. You know, I'm just going to say this, 641 appearances, four league titles, three Scottish Cups, a League Cup. Guy's unique. There'll never be another goalkeeper who will ever play that many games for Celtic. Now would be a good time for a round of applause. <laughs> I paid him. So, um, I'm going to go back here to, to Love Street. Not much love there, is there, really, let's be honest. But yeah, sorry about that, guys. Yeah. Listen, if it, if it helped, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a, a Glaswegian with Irish roots who owes the best part of my career to Packy Bonner, so if it helps you, think of me as Ray Houghton, okay? <laughs> it would be fair to say that nobody expected anything other than Hearts being crowned champions on the 3rd of May, 1986. It was the last day of the campaign and the Edinburgh side required only a draw from their match at Dens Park with Dundee. We were the only side who could take the title from them but needed to beat St Mirren in Paisley by four clear goals and hope for a slip-up at Dens Park. The boys had been on a great run, unbeaten in 16 league games, having won the last eight on the bounce. Pleasingly for me, we hadn't conceded a goal in the last four matches. So we were confident about getting a result from Love Street, even if we couldn't determine the outcome of the Hearts match and we were a man down in the squad. Alan Rambo McAnally called off in the morning of the game with an illness. Davy Hayes' pre-match team talk was one of the briefest he ever gave in his time at the club and consisted mainly of taking us through copies of the press cuttings that virtually anointed Hearts as the champions. We were 4-0 up at the interval and had managed to score one of the best goals that I can ever remember in my time at the club. Danny started it on the edge of our own box, winning the ball before passing to Paul McStay, who then slipped it to Big Roy who in turn passed it back to the onrushing Danny again. When he released Brian McClare down the right, his cross was turned in <coughs> by Morris Johnson. <laughs> no, no, no. no, actually, listen, I bumped into Morris last week, you know. I say bumped, I had to mount the pavement and get him, but I felt it was worth it. So, anyway, I digress. At halftime, news came through that it was nil-nil at Dens Park and hearts were still in the driving seat. As I sat quietly in the dressing room, I thought back to 1982 when Aberdeen were 4-0 up against Rangers and we were still being held at home by St Mirren, requiring a win. That day, the news had inspired us, but for a while it definitely unnerved us as the Dons were clearly going all out to put pressure on our challenge. I wondered if the Hearts boys were feeling that pressure now. They had to know what was happening in Paisley, and although 0-0 was enough for the title, well, one goal from Dundee could cause panic. Brian put us five up early in the second half, and then it was the waiting game. When you're a player out on the pitch, you get used to the noise of the crowd. Cheering would always follow a goal for either side, and I was used to that crescendo of sound, even when I conceded. The spontaneous cheer, well, that's something else altogether. 
Until my dying day, I will always remember the shock I felt when after a move up the pitch that ended with Jim Stewart clutching the ball in the St Mirren goalmouth, this explosion of sound suddenly roared out from behind him and then like a huge wave from different groups around the stadium until it came from every single Celtic supporter on the ground. I have seen the footage many times. It always has the same effect on me, as does even relating the story now. The hairs on the back of my neck stood to attention as I took in the news, the only news that it could possibly be that Dundee had scored at Dens Park. We would later find out that it was a fella called Albert Kidd, second-half substitute and a Celtic fan to boot, who had done the damage by scoring the first of his two goals that day with just seven minutes to go. In the very last moments of the season, with Hearts just seven minutes or so away from their first top-tier championship in 26 years. I'm really sorry about this, mate. Right? <laughs> kids, kids had pounced and 90 miles down the road in Paisley, we were champions. I remember looking over at the St Mirren team. Frank McGarvey was playing for them, having moved back to the Buddies after his departure for Celtic the year before. He was out on the pitch on another unforgettable day in Celtic history but sadly for him and his family. He was not a part of it in the way that he would love to have been. But that's the game, isn't it? What was even more surreal was getting back into the dressing room and there, as large as life, was Alan McAnally, fully recovered <laughs> and ready for his cameo in the spotlight. Seriously, Rambo would strike a pose every time he opened his microwave and the light came on. <laughs> and this was even before his years at Bayern Munich in Munich, München. <laughs> Davy Hay had finally brought the title to Celtic Park and in the most dramatic of circumstances. <laughs> Hands up. Were you at Love Street? No. Yeah. Hands up if you were at Love Street that day. Hands up if you've seen the video of it. Were you? Sorry, mate. Come on down here. Hands up if you weren't at Love Street for the most important game in Celtic's history because your girlfriend had said they're not going to win the league. That's probably a good day to get married. <laughs> <laughs> Bloody true story. Paul will get married. Well, now it's my turn to cry. You're right. You're right. So I'm getting uh, married, right? I'm getting married. There's this huge, huge aisle, you. So we got, we, you know, signed the book. And I'm getting to the church and somebody says, Celtic are winning 4-0, by the way. I said, all right, okay. I said, but hearts are still 0-0 no, no, in the driving seat. So, of course, it's a Catholic wedding. It takes about an hour and a half, right? So, so I went and signed the book, and then I go down, and I'm just about to go down the aisle, and this guy comes running up about a mile, and I thought, is he going to take my photograph? And he goes by, and excuse me, I'm going to have to use the language here. He goes right behind me, and he goes, fucking want a link. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to him, thanks, Father. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a true story. <laughs> so there you go. Oh, he told me that story. It was great fun, great fun. And he had to, I said, you've got to tell that tonight. You know, you've got to tell the that. The wife loves it, you know, so. Well, we had so many, many, many good times at Celtic and during, especially during that period, the 80s, and probably the centenary year also was a fantastic year. It was like a play. It was interesting when you come to these, it's a book we're reading here, but it was like a play. And we had to talk about personal mentors, you know, and, and I think when you go through life and that journey that we go on, there's lots of people that affect you along the way. And, uh, Mentors, I, I, I use the word mentors. Um, Frank Connor, not many of you would probably maybe recognize Frank. Frank was in charge of the reserves. He was the next goalkeeper, played with Derry, played with Balamina, and he was the guy that pushed us on, pushed us on uh, as, a, as a group of reserve players. He, he made us believe that we should be in the team. He, he used to do, he was a manager, he used to do the rubs, he did everything in the dressing room, but he had you wound up to be the best. And he, but, he, but he was hard. He was hard on us. He actually was in charge of Albion Rovers many years later. And my son, Andrew, who was trying to become a footballer at 18, 19, was in the, went to Albion Rovers in the under-19 team. And Andrew used to come in every night, and he thought he was Pelly. <laughs> <laughs> Pelly. Frank had, had him wound up. He never quite made it, but that's another day. He had a couple of caps for Ireland. But Frank, I, I, I owe him a huge amount. And mentors change as you go along. Danny McGrain. I don't know if, if you, any of you have met him. Um, Danny had a wonderful uh, effect in the dressing room. He had a wonderful effect on young people. He used to pick up Charlie Nicholas every single morning and drive Char Charlie in. And he had that way of also uh, giving us advice, but giving us good advice, and also telling us what we did wrong, which was great. I remember 
what about four or five years ago, we had mm. a big charity match, maybe a little bit longer now, six no, years, ago? years ago. Yeah. Five years ago at Parkhead. There was 50,000 people at Parkhead. I was playing. I was in goals. <laughs> you've ever played Parkhead under 50,000 when you're not fit <laughs> and you've got a belly on you and you can't <laughs> run? But I was in goals. And it was on TV and we we're playing Manchester United in the charity match. They had Roy Keane, Dwight York. Danny is a little bit older than me, hobbling around, and he was playing also. But he was on the bench, and he says to me before the game, he says, he says don't, 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 don't throw the ball out to me. <laughs> don't throw the ball out to me. <laughs> don't throw the ball out to me. <laughs> and then about 15 minutes to go, substitution, Danny was coming on for his cameo. He got on the pitch, the first thing is, give me the fucking ball. <laughs> 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 and I said, Danny, yeah. And he, and he took the ball, wonderful. And that was the old thing clicked back in, because Danny wanted to play. And, and Charlie talks about this fantastic ability the, the two of them had. It was almost like a memory thing that Charlie would go one way and the ball would land right at his feet on the opposite way. He was a wonderful player, World Club, Cup uh, player, but a world-class player, but a, a world-class player not just in, on the pitch, but off the pitch as far as we were concerned. The other one, Tommy Burns. God rest him. Uh, Tommy was... Uh, Incredible man. He put me under his wing also because he lived down the road from me. He took me in one of the first mornings um, I met him and he brought him in, me into the house and Rosemary was the wife and he says, make something to eat for this man. And she made a fry up for me. I always tell her. <laughs> she made a fry up. She was under pressure. Who, who, who's this guy? And he used to do that. He brought up uh, George Cadet for his Christmas dinner up to the house. <laughs> he brought George Cadet and Rosemary said, <laughs> you know, you don't bring in a... a anyway, Tommy, Tommy had that. He would disappear. We used to fall out all the time. And he fought with Peter Grant. He fought with me. He fought with so many different people. And uh, that was the way he was. When he was manager, he fought with us. He used to come down from training. We used to train up on Barrafield. And we'd come down the road. And we were going... And I was in the coaching center. I said, where's Tommy? I knew where Tommy was. I knew where Tommy was. Tommy was in St. Michael's at Mass. He used to go to Mass every day, and he would go into St. Michael's, and he would come back in about an hour later, and he was a completely different man. <laughs> different man. He was happy. He was joyful. I remember going on many trips, and the first thing Tommy wanted was to find out where the chapel was. <laughs> and we would go in the chapel. But I, I roomed with him, stayed in the house with him for six months because he was the manager, and he brought me down to Reading as an assistant manager. I was the cook. I drove him. I did the cleaning, I did everything. Tommy watched football on TV. <laughs> that was it. And I, Rosemary put in the bulbs into the, when the bulb went out in the house. No. He couldn't do any jobs, but he was a wonderful guy. And he had, a, he had an unbelievable way with people. Um, I always talk about this. We used to go into the dressing room and, you know, Billy McNeil was a big, strong man. He was a strong man. He would come in and chest was out and he's shouting and he's going, man, that was the way he managed. David Hay was quiet, didn't say too much, but they also had a huge passion in the dressing room, especially at halftime when we were playing hearts <laughs> or hibs. But Tommy had a different way of doing it. He didn't shout. He was tactically very aware. He wanted to use the 15 minutes really, really well. And he had this ability talk low to you, to make a point. Are you listening? Are you listening? And he had the attention of the whole, uh, the whole group. And I picked up on that myself when I went into a little bit of management later on and different things. So he had a wonderful effect on all of us, and of course he died at a very young age uh, with skin cancer. We all know the story around him. Our families are very close still. All the kids are all going out together and so on, and, and Rosemary's a good friend. Jerry Payton's the other one. Uh, Jerry Payton was the other goalkeeper, he was older than me, he was like a coach. We didn't have a coach in our day when we went to Ireland, but Jerry was the other guy in my life that really affected me and helped me along the way. So those were mentors along the way. This man, Jerry, you want to say anything first before I talk about him? Well, I want to know that you're going to do your Jack Charlton impression. <laughs> this guy does the greatest Jack Charlton impression you're ever going to hear, and he's going to do it for you in a moment. But um, yeah, I mean, to me, Jack Charlton, I don't know what he was like tactically or what he was as a motivator, but to me, he was, you know, a man of the people. And that, I think this is a classic photograph because this yeah. sums up what Jack Charlton's all about. I think this is in Dublin, St. Stephen's. This is up in uh, St. Stephen's yeah. Green in a, in a park. I think he was catching a, a cigarette. 
Jack no. didn't buy anything in Ireland, by the way. No. <laughs> Everything was free. Aye. Everything was free, the pints and the cigarettes. <laughs> and this old guy got up to him and said, yeah. but you can look, look at the way that they're talking. Look at the way that the old man has loves Jack. And he's obviously something very, very funny to him. And that was Jack. Jack had, for me, which is the most important thing in leadership and management, he had the ability to make communication with people. I went into houses, lots and lots of houses afterwards, especially down in Donegal where I come from, out in the country, and I would go in and talk to older people that would, had no interest in football. They loved what we were doing at that particular time, all caught up in it, and they would say, oh, we love Jack. They never met him in their life, but he had this ability to across TV and communicate with. And that's what I put down to him. The other thing that Jack, Jack um, did for, for me was give me a responsibility. I don't know all of you are in positions and, and working at, and sometimes we take responsibility away from people. And especially in the world of football we're in now, everything's done for every single football. Do you play football, young man? Does everything done for you? Does your dad do your boots? Yeah? He does that. Everything's done. All the free kicks are up on the wall. You see them with the iPads. You know where they go with the iPad? Where am I standing at the free kick? Oh, I'm standing there. Oh, thank you very much. And then somebody else moves and there's a goal. I said, no, but you told me to stand here. Yeah? <laughs> this, is, this is the nature of football. But Jack said to me, at 26 years old, he, he, I was when he took over. We went down to Old Trafford. And we did a day where I was bringing the guys together, a bit of bonding, but we were doing set pieces. And he says to me, he says, you, he says, you, he says, you're, you. in, you're in charge of everything defensively. <laughs> and I says, what? Me? Def me? I'm 26, Jack. <laughs> Nobody ever asked me to do that. He said to Ray Houghton, you, you're everything offensively. You take everything offensively. So we had to then go and work it all out. I used to go to Jerry Payton, and we sat down and we said, near post, who's in the back post, who's picking up, who's doing all of this? At 26, free kicks, who's in the wall, who's setting the wall up. Then I had to go around the dressing room or before the game and tell all these people what they had to do. Liam Brady from Juventus, you're in, and he's going, are you looking at me? But I had to do it. And what it did for me was I grew and grew. When in a group of people, by the way, that I was the only, at that point in time, I was the only player playing outside of, apart from Liam, was it Juventus, outside uh, England. I was in Scotland and I had to go in and tell these guys what they had to do. So I grew and grew with that responsibility. And I, I look back on him now. He's, he was a man that fitted into the Irish setup. Uh, I think the people recognized that he was a normal guy. He did a bit of fishing. He had the same jacket on for 20 years. <laughs> Corduroy trousers, maybe are those kind of trousers. He says to me one day, he says, oh, he says, hey, you. He says, I was down in Donegal, it was up in Ardra. Ardra is a place where they make tweed coats, tweed jackets, Ardra. And he says, they took me around the bloody factory, he says. The factory, he says, they offered me, or they said I would get a jacket. You go back down and get the jacket for me. <laughs> and if you don't go, you won't be in the bloody team, he says. <laughs> I said, okay, Jack, I'll do my best. I don't think I ever got it for him. Tell, the, he, walk, tell the Walkman story. Yeah, when, when I, I, this is probably, I'm giving away the book again, you know. But anyway, some of you made and buy the book, so no, okay. The best story, this is the best story of Jack for me. At the end of my career, I was lucky, I had a testimonial with, with Celtic. And who am I going to get? Juventus, AC Milan, no, I'm going to bring the Irish team over. And I'm going to bring it over and Jack's in charge. And they all turned up. But for a about a month or two leading into it, I kept asking them, I want to buy them a present. I wasn't going to get them what Jack got them a little onyx lighter when, when Celtic played Leeds, yeah? <laughs> no, no, I'm going to get something decent for them. Not a bit of crystal or so on. Something. So this sounds really, really naff now when I talk to you about it. Technology has moved on so quickly. The CD player was just coming on the market. The CDs, remember the CDs? Remember that old CD? But the CD, portable CD, you couldn't get them. So, but I got them, and I had these as a gift for the players. I said to Jack, when I asked him, what do you want, Jack? He said, oh, he says, give me a box of scotch, box of scotch. <laughs> so I got him a box of scotch, but I also had the CD player for him. So we went back to the Albion Hotel, and had a big uh, dinner, had the speeches, and then it was time to give out the gifts. So I said to, brought up 
okay, I want to give out a gift. Jack, could you bring your Irish team up? So Jack was out of the seat ready. He loved gifts, by the way. He loved gifts. <laughs> Straight out of the seat and he's up and he's marching up. And I had a CD player, portable CD player, out on top of the box to show everybody their name on it and everything. And he, and he stopped. And he's, what? Can I swear? <laughs> what the fuck is that, is this? What the fuck is that? And I says, your gift, Jack. He says, what? He says, what am I going to do with a toaster? <laughs> And I, I had to, <laughs> and I had to explain to him that it wasn't a toaster, it was a CD. And then, you remember, ladies and, and gentlemen, the CDs, how much did they cost? About £15 to put into a CD. He went back to the table, and the lads told him, Jack, it'll cost you a fortune, and he tried to sell the CD player to one of the players. <laughs> but he was, a, he was a wonderful, wonderful man. The team, just the team that he had, and I just want to, we're, we're running probably out of time. Uh, very quickly. This was a team that made history beat England. We played Scotland here, some of you might know, and the qualifications for that. And the team that particular night, this was a team that played against England, but the team that night, and think about the players, think about it, Paul McGrath, Manchester United, right back. I was in goals, by the way. Uh, <laughs> centre half, Mick McCarthy, had just gone from Man City to Celtic. Kevin Moore, Manchester United. Left back, Ronnie Whelan, Liverpool. Right side was Ray Houghton, Liverpool. Centre midfield, Mark Lawrence in Liverpool. Left, centre midfield, Liam Brady, Juventus. Left wing, Tony Galvin, the one far corner, Spurs. And up front was John Aldridge, Liverpool, and Frank Staple, Manchester United. An incredible team. We didn't know how good we, are, we were until we went in and played the competition, but it was an incredible. Then we had all these other young guys coming through. Some of you might recognise them. Steve Staunton went on to over 100 caps, played with Liverpool. Niall Quinn. Beautiful long hair, ladies. Yeah, at that time. Now he's near, well, he's not bald, he's got short hair. Arsenal. Dave Leary, Arsenal. Roy Keane coming through, Forrest to Man United. Kevin Sheedy, Everton, scored a goal against England. Andy Townsend, Chelsea at that time, went on to play with Southampton. And Tony Cascarino. <laughs> Tony Cascarino, who came up to us. Indeed. There's a, can I tell the final story? We we'll, we'll have to move on very quickly, but the, yeah. there's a lovely story. In the World Cup 1990, our Tisha, our, our Prime Minister, for some of you who don't know, the Tisha was Charlie Hawhey. Now, Charlie Hawhey is no longer what is, but he was in charge of Fianna Fáil. He wasn't into sport, but he, 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 because it was such a big occasion, he had to go to Italy. So Charlie Hawhey came to Italy in his private plane, and he wanted them when we were knocked out after Scalacci scored a very dubious goal, by the way. Uh, he wanted to go around and see all his people and wave to all his people. Charlie Hawhey. He played in the game. He was centre forward, by the way. <laughs> but he went round and he wanted Jack Charlton to come. We were, we were all in the dressing room waiting for Jack to come in. But Jack's out waving his flag. So eventually they come in. And we're all sitting there. And next thing the door burst open. In comes Charlie Hawhey. And our physio, Mick Byrne, who was a big fan of Falman, said, oh, there's, there's a T-shirt, there's a T-shirt. So the T-shirt's coming in. So everything stopped, and Charlie went into a big speech, our T-shirt. He says, gentlemen, you've done the country proud. You've done your families proud. You've done me proud. <laughs> He's going to this big speech about it. And Andy and Cass were sitting down the corner, and El Quinn was sitting here, and I was sitting on this side. And uh, Andy says to Cass, he says, who's that Who's that geezer? <laughs> Who's that geezer? And Cass says, Andy, I don't know who that geezer is, but I think he owns a tea shop. <laughs> I think he owns a tea And Niall would say, that's our prime minister, so be quiet, you know. So it was a wonderful time. So that was our, our guys. Just to say to you, it was all about, the, this is our physio, uh, Mick Bourne and left, and little Charlie O'Leary. Little Charlie was about five foot tall, but they were all part of it. We only had three staff. Three staff during 1990 and 94. Now they've got 15, 20 staff. That's what, and Charlie was an ex-referee. Uh, used to wear a little hat when he refereed, and he was Jack's, Jack's confidant. Jack and him would go way down the road for a walk, but Charlie could give them all what was happening in the... And we used to gather into Charlie's room, in the kit room, and we used to have fantastic fun. Fantastic fun, little Charlie was. But that was a, everybody sharing in success. And I think that's critical. And we also let the fans into the hotel. The fans were also a big, big part of it. And it was critical for what we wanted to do. 
Can I show you this? This is the motion around this, in slow motion. This was during the penalty save. Watch the expression on the girls and the guys' faces here. She's watching, you know what. Just happens. Somebody saved the penalty. <laughs> had I held that? I would have held it too. I had a bit of emotion around me. Hi, is ever jump? And she had a bit of emotion. <laughs> Did they not wear bras and I <laughs> And watch this guy's face. And he's also wearing a Celtic jersey. Watch that fantastic emotion on the guy's face. He was just delirious with what was happening. There's so much more you can show. Now, this guy here was a man called John Healy. He was a political correspondent in Ireland. Very tough nose. I know you had a few political people around this venue all week. There was a summit on in Ireland. It was a European summit. Maggie Thatcher was over it. They stopped it for the penalty shootout. And this is the effect it had on this man, a hard nose. He's dead recently. He died a couple of years after that. But he just was overcome with the motion and what it means to a, to a group, a nation. It was the first time in the World Cup and so on. So I just think the effect of all of that, I try to sum it up in the book and I talk about it because that's what my journey was, was all about. We well, can, we, we can, can, have we time for two? We can cry when we get to a World Cup. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think we need to cut to the chase package. We'll, we want to do a quick Q&A. No, no, on you go, on you go. Not yes. at all. Good. Have you got a date, aye? <laughs> <laughs> it's just a stage you're going through. Don't worry about it. <laughs> we'll so, do this um, last reading then. We'll I think we'll do last. this last reading uh, just now. Now, here's the thing. Do you want to do... I think I would do the return to Donegal. Yeah. After the World Cup. Now, obviously, we, we gave blind, you Packy yeah. going back, Christmas 78. This is him going back, not just to Ireland, because there was a big reception, 500,000 people turned up, blah, blah, blah. But this is Packy going back home to Donegal. No sooner was I back than we made plans to return to Donegal, a much-needed break ahead of Celtic's pre-season preparations. We booked a flight from Glasgow to Carrick Finn, and then, as always, there was a warm sense of being home as the plane touched down on the Irish tarmac and taxied towards the terminal building. I'd been tipped off that there would be a bit of a reception waiting for us, but it was absolutely flabbergasted when I disembarked the tiny aircraft with Melissa nestling in my arms for her first visit to my home county, country. She was born six weeks earlier. There were thousands of people waiting for us to come off the plane. As we did so, we were swamped with well-wishers. Some of the faces I recognised, but so many of them would have been strangers to me, and all of them had turned out en masse to offer congratulations. Oh, there we are, the fireworks Start are starting. Good, huh? Once again, I was home among my own people, and they in turn had gone out of their way to welcome back one of their own. I was completely overwhelmed and one of the most emotional moments of my life. David Alcorn, local organiser and the one who had led the old Philistrate all those years when Celtic came to Dundalk, had orchestrated a Welkingham home committee and then transferred the ferries back to Burton Port. Our first stop, of course, was Central Park, home of Cajun Rovers. There were speeches from the Donegal TDs, Patrick Cope Galler and Denny McGinley, but Manus McCall was also there brimming with pride, and, was most, and most importantly, the lads who had played with me back in the day. This wasn't just my celebration, it was very much theirs as well, and it was only right and fitting that I should stand once again on the turf where it all started for me. As I looked out from the man-made stage, across the pitch to the goldmouths that I had defended as a raw apprentice scrambling my way along in the game, I thought back to this vital place in my journey. I remember the boy in a duffel coat clinging to his bag and Doherty's coach, coaches, fighting back the tears as he left home for a new adventure. That night before Christmas in 1978, when I returned home gratefully to spend an emotional Christmas with my family. Those many nights when I had lain between the sheets of my, of my bed in my uncle and aunt and uncle's house, sobbing quietly and wondering if it was all worthwhile. And of course, I thought of my father, the old fella, what would he have made of all of this? He had travelled everywhere with Dennis and I when we were at Keju, and now I was back at Keju having, having achieved dreams that in my wildest imagination would not have seemed possible when I was that gangly youth defending the home or away goals for the Rovers. 
None of what I achieved up until this point, or indeed what I would go on to achieve, would have been possible without all these people, players, and family in my life. Next stop was Dunlow for more of the same, and I was absolutely mobbed. It reminded me of the Merry from Dunlow Festival when I was a young fella. I could picture the marquee where Dennis, Sean, Connell and myself had gone on, gone in and hope of getting a dance with a young girl. Back in the day, there were three questions. What's your name? Where do you live? Can I walk you home? <laughs> Sean was a bit of a shy fellow, apt to panic a bit under pressure. And so the last dance of the evening and the event going into injury time, he popped a question to a young lady. What's your name, Bernadette? Where do you live? New York. Can I walk you home? Huh? <laughs> Memories so strong, I could almost reach out and touch them. There you go. Thank you. Thank you, Nina. Okay. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Packet. Who, sorry, before you go, who was in the marquee and on low? And then three questions was always what you had to do. Three dances, by the way, three questions. Yeah, you were all there, some of you old guys. Don't talk, don't. So he says to me, I can't read, I don't read, cured that. He says, I, I don't know if I can talk for that long, you know? <laughs> 25 past nine. Anyway, what we'd like to do, we're going to, obviously, we're going to be around, uh, we're going to be signing some books, if, if you fancy that. Uh, we'll take a couple of quick questions if somebody wants to pop their hand up. And... Right, okay, fine. Uh, we don't have any questions, I'd still like to have Okay, I, so it remains yeah. for, uh, for me, uh, to thank you all for coming out tonight and uh, coming for the book, etc. Uh, I owe a very, very big thank you to Mr. Packy Bonner as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A big thank you to Jerry. Without him, couldn't be done. And thank you for all for coming. Thank you very much. It's good to see you, Graham. Apologies, mate. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for Edbookfest.